morning, Woodland Hills. Good morning to all you guys who are in-house and all you guys who are out-house. It's good to be sharing this moment together. It's good to know that uh, you can volunteer as little as once a week here at Woodland Hills Church. I, I think you must say once a month, uh, but uh, thank you, Dan, for that wonderful announcement. Uh, you might notice I'm sitting down today. Um, how many of you know that we live in a fallen universe? <laughs> Oh, we live in a fallen universe. It's everything screwed up. So progress is never perfectly linear. I've had six months of really good improvement and my yoga and my health and losing 35 pounds and the rest. And then you hit a glitch. So let's just leave it. I hit a glitch. So I'm not walking today. Oh, I'm walking, but I'm not going to walk while I'm preaching. Uh, Just a little bit of a back issue. So there's that, just to take that question off the table. I want to say hi to uh, Jeff and Quinna from Oklahoma. Where are you guys? Yeah. Hey, welcome. Good to have you here. Anyone else visiting from out of town? Raise your hand if you're visiting from out of town. Yeah, give there's a couple people here. Give them a hand. All right. Mary, you're not visiting from out of town. It's not, it's not always about you. Just usually about you. All right. Well, today... Uh, we got two more messages on judgment and the trusting God as judge that I want to give. And today, I want to address an aspect of God's judgment. It's also an aspect of God's salvation that I think is for Westerners like us, most of us listening here, um, it's the hardest thing to understand. And because we have trouble understanding this aspect of God's judgment and this aspect of God's salvation, we have trouble really grasping the, the severity of uh, our, uh, the, the condition we're in as human beings. Uh, just how dire our situation is apart from Christ. And because we don't fully appreciate how dire our situation is apart from Christ, uh, we have trouble appreciating the full dimension of how glorious is God's salvation. You only appreciate the full depth of the glory of salvation to the degree that you, you appreciate how desperate our situation was apart from that salvation. Um, and so we, we hear talk a lot about how in the Western worldview, we tend to be very individualistic. We tend to uh, put ultimate value on and ascribe ultimate reality to individuals. We tend to define the individual over and against others. So you're an individual to the degree that you have unique stuff that's not in common with others. You're unique to the degree that you're kind of set apart by your distinctives. We define the individual over and against others. Whereas, oh, if I, I was going to draw that here, yes. Just to show off my, my incredible artwork. I forgot that we had a board here. So, so here, here's how we tend to define individuals. Uh, so... In the, I can't draw full bodies there. So it's, it's like the, the arrow is a contrasting arrow. Whereas in the Bible, and this is true of most individual or most other cultures, you define the individual in relationship to one another. So the arrow, this arrow is like this, see? And this arrow is like this. And this is how the Bible defines uh, uh, individuals, and most cultures define it this way. And as my friend Paul Eddy uh, says, who studied a whole lot more about covenant than I know, that whenever there's people in covenant relationships, two or more, it creates a third reality. I, 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 the whole is more than the sum of the parts. And so there's a distinct usness here that the Bible captures, that most other cultures capture, but that we tend to miss. 
We tend to see individuals, and then the relationship is sort of just a verb that we do. It's not really essential to who we are. Whereas from a biblical perspective, there are, the individuals are real, and they're responsible for their own choices, but the, the covenant, whether it's explicit or implicit, it creates this new reality, so that the whole is more than the sum of the parts. Classic example of this is the one flesh relationship that's created in marriage. Uh, the Bible teaches that when they two come together, they, they become one flesh. And that's symbolized by the sexual union, but it goes way beyond sex. There's a new reality here. Jesus says what God has joined together, let no one put asunder. Uh, there's a new thing here. It's more than the sum of the parts. This one flesh reality. It's not just a metaphor. But see, because we're so individualistic in the way that we look at the world, we tend to just see two individuals who enter into sort of a contract. But the, the contract or the relationship isn't essential to who they are. Whereas from a biblical perspective, it is essential to who they are. There's a new reality here. And this is true for all groups that are, are joined together by some kind of common agreement, common purpose. A covenant, whether it's implicit or, or explicit. So the Bible tends to see families as, yeah, they're individuals that are there, but the family itself is, is one thing. It can be treated as, as uh, almost like a, its own individual person. And the same is true of tribes. And the same is true of nations. This is why throughout the Bible, when, when God is addressing a nation, he addresses it as though the nation was one person. And so when God blesses a nation, he blesses the whole nation, even though there are individuals within that nation who I'm sure don't deserve it. And when God sees he has to allow judgment to come on a nation, it comes on the whole nation, even though surely there are innocent children there who don't deserve that. On an individual level, it's completely unfair. It's completely unjust. And in fact, until the final judgment, life will be utterly unfair at an individual level. Until the final judgment, when God sets everything straight and brings about all justice, life is going to be profoundly unfair. That's, that's kind of why you need a final judgment if you believe in justice at all. There's got to be some kind of finality where people reap what they sow and our actions actually become morally significant. So he treats all nations as this, whether it's for the better or for the worse. Um, it, it's grossly unfair until the final judgment. What I really want us to see this morning, however, is that this is also true for humanity as a whole, for the entire human race. We tend to see humanity as simply a collection of individuals, a collection of individuals who happen to share the same DNA. Humanity is simply an abstract noun that represents all the individuals that comprise humanity. Um, but see, from a biblical perspective, Yes, we are all individuals, and we are only responsible for what we could have done otherwise. We're all individuals, but there's a reality to, there's an usness to humanity as a whole extending throughout all time. So that, in some sense, God often treats us, humanity as a whole, as though we were one person. In some sense, we stand or fall together. And you see this reflected throughout both the Old and the New Testaments. I'll give you a couple examples here. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. Listen to this. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ. So Paul's referring back here to Genesis chapter 2, where God enters into a covenant with Adam. 
And you got to know that in Hebrew, Adam, Adam, is simply the word for human. So this is a covenant that God enters into with humanity, with all of us. And the, the covenant is just this, and we covered this way back early in the series that we're on. We're still actually in a series on Matthew 7 about not judging. Uh, it's been an interesting journey. So um, we, we saw that our, that our job is to trust God's provision, which is represented by the tree of life. God offers us fullness of life. And we're to trust God for that and go to God for that and nowhere else. And, and we're to honor God's prohibition, which is don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't set yourself up as judge. Never think that you're superior to others. Uh, never judge negatively others' worth. Uh, because that is at the root of all evil. All hatred, all violence, all of that presupposes a negative judgment that's first made in our mind. And so God says, leave all judgment to me. That's what this whole series is about. Trust me to do the judging and trust me to provide life. Your job is just to agree with me <laughs> and, and, and agree with God about it, the worth of every person and agree with, agree with me about the, the value of, of the earth and the animal kingdom that I'm entrusting to you. So in Adam, that, that phrase, in Adam, it represents all of us, humanity in rebellion against God. In Adam represents humanity under the bondage to the principalities and the powers. In Adam stands for humanity apart from Christ. Humanity, thinking that in our fallen state, we can do our own thing, that we can be Lord of our own life. We can trust our own intelligence to solve all problems. Humanity, insofar as we have failed to fulfill that first mandate to love and care for and sacrifice for the earth and the animal kingdom, and I, I hope that we're still all intentionally on that journey. What can we sacrifice to reflect the worth and value of the earth and the animal kingdom that are, that are, are our responsibility, that have been entrusted to us. In Adam represents humanity that is lost and humanity that is dead in sin and humanity that cannot save itself. It represents, in Adam represents humanity that is headed for, we are bringing judgment upon ourselves. We're headed towards death. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Because when we turn from God, create our own alternate imagined reality and do our own thing, living as though we're not accountable to God. When we turn from God, we're turning from life itself, which is to say we're turning towards death. By definition, our sin kills us. Now, I, I know that most of us, you know, don't, don't feel like that doesn't resonate on an intuitive level. We're not that bad. Come on. That's rather negative, don't you think, Greg? I'm sorry to rain on your up with humanity progressive liberal campaign, but according to the Bible, we're not all that great. Uh, we're in bad shape as a race. And I know part of the, the affliction that we have, part of the sickness or the disease that we have is that we tend to rate ourselves pretty high. That's why we judge. To judge, we have to put ourselves in a position of superiority. And that's why we do it. We want to massage our ego. And so we always feel pretty good about ourselves. We're not perfect, of course, but we're better than that group and that group and that group. So that's, that's the sign of our sickness. We think that we're just all, just all great. On the other hand, if we're all that great, how do we get ourselves in this incredible mess? Uh, and there's times where I look at this mess that we've gotten ourselves into here and the incredible, ever-intensifying conflict that we, we, we see at a social level, and the intensifying chaos that we see at the climate level, and the ecological crisis that we're in right now, 
And all of it has been, as humans go, so the earth goes. We preached that message a couple weeks ago. It's all our responsibility and it's a reflection of us. It's always very preventable. We've got ourselves in this mess and there's a part of me that thinks we deserve this. Do you resonate with that? It's like you get what you deserve and in some way this is a mirror of our spiritual status. And I think that maybe is tapping into a little bit of the biblical concept of while we're only morally responsible for what we each individually do, there is a sort of collective guilt. We have done this. It's not we as a collection of individuals, but the usness that is the human race. As in Adam, all die. But thankfully, hallelujah, praise God, thank you, Jesus, Adam doesn't end the story. Somebody say amen. <laughs> Adam's not the end of the story. As in Adam, all die. Okay, that's the bad news, and it is really bad news. But there's also the so also. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Think about that. All will be made alive. He did say that, didn't he? Let's look at it one more time. Can you show that verse again just to make sure we got it right? For as all die in Adam, so also all will be made alive in Christ. That's what Paul says. Hallelujah. In some sense, we stand or fall together. And in Adam, we all fall. But in Christ, Paul's saying we all will be made alive. Hallelujah. And this isn't the only place where he says that. Here's what he says in Romans 5. He says, therefore, just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all. That's that shared collective guilt in Adam. We all die. So one man's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. Hallelujah. For just, sorry, it's a piece of advice. For just as one man's, it's probably like the number one rule in speaking is do not like suck on ice while you're talking to people. <laughs> I think that completes the list. I think I've, I've violated every rule of public speaking you can violate. That was the last one to go. Okay, there you go. I came up here with my zipper down about eight, what, 18 years ago, I think it was. So I checked that one off. thought you want to know that. For just as one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners... So by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Okay, the many, uh, it, that doesn't contrast with all. Uh, sometimes when we use the word many, we, it's many but not all. But in, in uh, Semitic idiom, in the Jewish language, the many can be used as a synonym for all. It just points out a different aspect of the all. All reflects how all-inclusive it is. The many reflects the multitude that is included in that all-encompassing thing. So the multitudes, you could, you, you, you could express it. it. It's meant to emphasize how many are in there. And he says here that just as all, Adam's trespass led to the, the condemnation for all. He's not saying that we're condemned for what Adam did. But Adam, in the Genesis story, was the one who sinned first and opened the floodgates of sin, entered, sin entered the world. And the powers then enter into the world because of that fall. And that leads us to sin, as Adam did, and therefore fall under condemnation. Paul says in Romans 3 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so, so we're part of this humanity that has fallen, but we own that for ourselves. We ratify it, as it were, for ourselves when we then replicate that sin. And, um, and, and so in Adam, we've all transgressed. We all are condemned. But in the same way, Jesus' one act of righteousness which he did on Calvary when he gave his life for us. That leads to the justification for all. So as in Adam, humanity falls under the judgment of God. God pours out 
allows us to suffer the consequences of, uh, of our sin. But the parallel to that is that in Christ, God has showered his mercy on all of humanity. Uh, his grace, his forgiveness, his love. Uh, he's given a bear hug around all human beings. As in Adam, all die, so in Christ, all will be made alive. He says it a little bit differently in, in Romans 11. He says this, For God has imprisoned all in disobedience so that, so that he may be merciful to all. Really interesting passage. Imprisoned here. The, the idea, it can be translated consigned uh, or to, to arrive at a de determination. It has the connotation of, of um, to kind of like close the case on somebody. Draw a conclusion, like a verdict. And so God has come to this conclusion. He's consigned us all to be in disobedience. He's, lo he's locked up the case on this. We have been disobedient. As a race and individually, we have gone our own ways, rejected God's ways, and brought harmful consequences upon ourselves. As a race, the case is closed on us. We're guilty. But God, when he closes the case on us and says we're guilty, he's not doing it for the purpose of damning us. When God concludes that we're guilty, he doesn't do it because he's trying to get revenge or payback or to make us suffer, though there's always suffering when we're allowed to suffer the consequences of our sin. But God's motive in, in, in closing the case on us that we're guilty is not to damn us, but so that, grasp this now, he can have mercy on us. His end game is always mercy. I've got to conclude that, that, that you're all under sin, because you are. You've turned from me, that you're headed towards death. He draws that conclusion. It's, it's there. You cannot save yourselves. You're dead in your sin. But God's motive in doing that is because he wants to have mercy upon all. Somebody say amen. Mercy upon all. That's what drives him. And really, how could it not be that way if God really is, as we always preach around here, other-oriented love? I want us to grasp the heart of God. God is Calvary-like love to the core of God's being. Here's how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. First uh, John 3.16. God, that, that defines God to his very essence. Hebrews 1.3. This is the hypostasis of God. The substance of God is, is found in the Son as he gives up his life for us on Calvary. Uh, that's motivated by other-oriented love. God is other-oriented love. His very being. So whatever God does, he does out of an other-oriented love. Whatever God does, he does in the interest of the other. And since judgment is something God does, or at least he allows it, that's motivated by an interest for the other. He does it with a grieving heart because it always involves suffering. All of God's judgments involve suffering. But as he lets us go to suffer the consequences of our sin, he has a grieving heart. But he's got a hopeful heart. He's looking for mercy. He wants to pour mercy upon all. I tell you, there's, this verse has kind of been comforting to me. There's times where I just look at this world as it is right now, and there's so much chaos and so much going wrong, and, and it's, it's, it's just getting it's intensifying. And, and I just say to myself, God has concluded that all are under sin, all are in disobedience, but so that he might have mercy upon all. Mercy has the last word. I got to tell you for one more verse. Second uh, Corinthians 5, it's one of my favorite passages. I come back to it quite frequently. But Paul is here explaining uh, why uh, he gave up his cushy life as a rabbi and you know, he had all this respect and prestige and all that. He gave it all up, become a church planner. And that was kind of a miserable life. 
Uh, he was shipwrecked. He was beaten. He had riots. I mean, it, 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 it's a tough life. And so some people thought he was gone crazy. Are you mad? Are you insane? And Paul says this in response. No, uh, we're not crazy. It's the love of Christ that urges us on. Hallelujah. The love of Christ, it compels us because we are convinced that one has died for all and therefore all have died. And he died for all so that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who died and was raised for them. What a beautiful passage. He says, the love of Christ urges us on, compels us on. It's love that he discovered that Christ has for him and then the love for Christ that that created. And that love just compels him. He's got to do this. Now, the beauty of his vision of God, that's found in Jesus Christ. And the most beautiful aspect of this vision of God that compels him on, that leads him to make all these sacrifices, the most beautiful aspect was that the fact that he realized from the revelation of God that if one died for all, if Christ died for all, then in some sense all have died. And he says, that's, that's just beautiful. And now Paul commits his life to telling people about that. That's the good news, that in Christ all have died. What died in Christ is that, that humanity in Adam. What died when, Christ, when, when Jesus was sacrificed was that humanity in rebellion against God, humanity in bondage to sin, humanity in bondage to the principalities and powers, humanity in bondage, in bondage to lies, humanity set on against one another, and humanity that's headed for destruction. That is what was put to death on the cross when Jesus died in our place. And he did that so that now a new humanity, this is Ephesians 2, in Christ, a new, a new humanity could be created where every individual is going to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ because only what is, what is consistent with the love of God enters into the kingdom. And so individually, all that's not of love will be purged from us. That's what the final judgment's all about. But that's also true of the human race. That the whole race from the start was intended to be a giant mirror, a reflection of the love of God. We do that together. It's, it's the usness of the, the human race. And that's what Jesus dies for. Yes, Jesus dies for every one of us individually, but Jesus died also for this human race. Treated as though it was one person. Christ died for all. And so he says the goal of this, Jesus died for all so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but live for the one who died for them. Okay, that is the ultimate end game. That's the goal. It's not just God forgiving us, but us being back in, in a restored relationship with God. Uh, it's us learning that the right way to live, the best way to live, is to live not for yourself, but for the one who gave his life for you. The best way to live is to live with a commitment to love the way Christ has loved us, to love God with all of our heart, mind, body, and soul, to love our neighbor as ourselves, and to love the earth and the animal kingdom. Uh, the goal is to have every individual reflecting that love of God and to have the human race reflecting the love of God because nothing other than the love of God is going to be found in the eternal kingdom of God when God finally sets the world straight and redeems it with a new heaven and a new earth. So here's the thing. That requires a choice. That requires a decision. And we, we know that God, because love is the goal and love's got to be chosen, it can't be coerced or manipulated or pre-programmed. And, and so God has a non-coercion policy, as it were. Uh, he, he will not coerce us into believing the truth, into accepting the truth or, or anything else. He won't, he won't do that. It's almost like God enters into a covenant not to do that when he creates free agents. Because by definition, to be free means you're not 
going to be manipulated or coerced. And so there's a part that we play in this, that we have to bring our thoughts and our heart and our lives into alignment with the truth. So you get this. Christ died for all, therefore all have died. That's what's true. And as in Adam all die, so in Christ all are made alive. That's what's true. That really happened. But individuals are still free to reject that truth, reject that reality, if that's what they want to choose. In fact, that's the essence of sin, is to, to, we, we, we reject reality. It goes back to Genesis 3. God says, here's what's real. I love you guys, and, and just let me do the judging, and you guys just do the loving, okay? And it's really going to be great. That's what's real. But Eve is free, if she chooses to, to start listening to that serpent. And, and, and she's free to imagine her alternative reality. I can do better than what I'm doing now. Maybe God's, she imagines God not being altogether loving, not having her best interests at heart. So she imagines that, that she of her own action can, can, can improve her lot in life. She can become good and wise just like God. That's a lie. It's all a lie, but that's what she's believing. So she acts on that, and that's what sin is. You choose your own reality over God's reality. But as we all know, playing the game of reality you can go ahead and imagine, and imagine alternative realities if you want, but in the end, reality always wins. Feel free to jump out of an airplane without a parachute if you want, imagining that you can fly uh, in about 60 seconds or however long you find out what reality is. And the final judgment is simply the point where our unrealities collide with real reality, with God, with the truth that God is other-oriented love. And everything unreal about us then gets purged away. And everything that's real about us, which in the end is only love, that gets purified so that we can enter into the kingdom. Christ died for all, but people are free, still free to accept that or to reject that. It can't be coerced. What God's after is reconciliation. So Jesus forgives everything. God forgives everything. Jesus' prayer on the cross was answered when he said, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. The father said, okay. And so it's been wiped clean. There's nothing that separates us from the love of God right now. But forgiveness is not yet reconciliation. You can forgive somebody, but if they don't think they need forgiveness, or they don't want that forgiveness, you're not reconciled. You don't have a relationship. And so they live as though they didn't need to be forgiven and as though you didn't forgive them. They live in that lie, and they're free to do that. So also, there's a role that we play in uh, we have, to, we have to accept this and embrace it and own it. And now the whole job of life, really, both for disciples and for people who don't even know God, but the whole goal, whether they know it or not, is to bring all of our thinking and all of our feeling and all of our attitudes and all of our conduct and all of our relationships, all of our everything into alignment with the truth. And when you know the truth, the truth will set you free. Hallelujah. Because everything that's in bondage about us is wrapped up in some lie that we believe, we've been taught, some lie that we've embraced. That's the whole goal of life. And the church has a role in this. Another verse in 2 Corinthians 5, 519, Paul says this. In Christ, <clears throat> God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting the message of reconciliation to us. See, Paul is still explaining why he has just given up everything in this world to, and committed himself to spreading the good news. Because God has entrusted to us this message of reconciliation. What's that message? The message is, 
God's not counting anyone's trespasses against them. That's, that's the good news that we're announcing because of what Jesus did on the cross. The whole sin judgment economy has been wiped slate clean. And now the door is open to be reconciled to God, to living the full life that God always wanted us to live. Now the time is, is open for healing to come into your life. Uh, and to realize that everything about you that holds you down, that oppresses you, that makes you miserable, that's all old. That's part of what was done away with on the cross. And now there's a new freedom and a new life and a new joy and a new love that you can discover in a relationship with, with, with Jesus Christ. From God's side, it's all taken care of. Will you accept this? That's the message. And so Paul says, we implore people to be reconciled to God. Precisely because the slate has been slept clean. There's a new humanity that's been created. Old Adam is dead and gone. Hallelujah. And now you can know the truth and the truth can set you free. That's the good news that we have for the world. So sad that the church gets it so wrong so often where we think it's our job to be pointing out people's sin. We do the exact opposite. As though we're somehow more righteous. Here's your sin, and here's your sin, and we're going to legislate you, and we're going to outlaw you, and whatever. Not our own sin, of course, but other people's sin. Now, the message is, is the opposite of that. God has forgiven us and, and done everything possible, metaphysically possible, to restore us into a relationship with, with him. The one thing God can't do is coerce us and make us accept that. And so it's our job to encourage people to implore, to implore them, to set an example of this kind of love by how we love and how we live, and then to invite them in on this alternative kingdom. That's the good news. That's the gospel. That's everything right there. Uh, for, if one died for all, then all have died. And that's, our, 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 that, that, that's our, our message to folks. That's our message. God changed everything for everyone on Calvary. And that includes for you and for me. All of us have in a real sense died. Will we accept this truth? Will, will we live in this forgiveness? Will we commit to aligning all of our thoughts uh, and, uh, and all of our behaviors? everything about us to this truth and, and, and uh, yeah, live in congruity with that. Christ has transformed everything in Adam to everything in Christ. And now the whole goal of our life is to put off everything that's inconsistent with that. Uh, put off the old self and to put on the new uh, by the renewing of our mind. And see, it, the whole New Testament, the rest of the New Testament teaches us that it's in our interest to do that now. Because otherwise it will be done for us. And that's what the final judgment's about. The purging of everything that's inconsistent with that love. Do it now! So it won't have to be done later on. Uh, this, is, this, is all, uh, this is that kind of already not yet paradox that we find coming in th throughout, the New, throughout the New Testament. Already everything has been changed for everyone. That is done. But we don't yet see that, do we? We don't yet see that reality. But we by faith commit to living as though it's true. Because we believe it is true, and we commit to helping others do the same. That's what the whole gospel is all about. Already, not yet. So here's the, 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 final, the question I want to spend the rest of this message uh, wrestling with. If it's true that we have free will, and we can always choose against God, go our own alternate reality. If that's true, how could Paul say that as all were in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ? As all died in Adam all will be made alive in Christ. How can he promise that? It looks like a promise. When you can't guarantee that as long as agents are free. And I say agents rather than humans because we could be talking about both angelic beings and human beings. I think we both have, have free will. And so in that sense, we're, we're, we're similar. How can Paul say several times, all will be made alive in Christ if it's got to be chosen? And, uh, and it, we're out there imploring people to accept this, but they're still always free to say no. 
So there's this tension that I feel. That, yes, I want to celebrate as all we're in Adam, so all are in Christ, because that displays the love of God. That displays the heart of God. However we interpret it, man, do we have a loving God. Uh, this isn't a God who's stingy with salvation or stingy with God's love. Uh, a God who holds grudges against people forever. A God who's going to damn people in hell forever and ever, as some people believe. No, this is a God who wants, to the core of God's being, everyone to be saved. And he's got this bear hug around everybody. He's saying, you're mine to everybody, everybody. Even the, the most wicked of the wicked. So I, I want to affirm that, but at the same time, I... I have to balance that with the recognition that we have free will. Uh, people always are free to say no. I have to balance this with all the warnings in the Bible about the judgment of God. Nowhere more so than in the teachings of Jesus. He uses this word Gehenna, which is tra- translated usually as hell. But it's this valley outside of Jerusalem. It's easy, speaking of a metaphor, it's like a, a lot of scholars argue that it was a dump. And, and, and so this is where you go when, when, when things have become useless. They're not fulfilling the purpose for which they were created. Hell. And Jesus warns about it a number of times to, to go your own way, be Lord of your own life, reject the ways of God. It will bring consequences. And it's not that God's going to be up there inflicting you with something. It's rather that the way you've chosen, all actions have consequences. And turning away from the God of life always results in death. And so, yeah, you have to hold those in, 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 in tension. And honestly, as I interpret the Bible anyways, the majority of the passages that speak about the ultimate fate of those who just refuse to repent, refuse to get their life in line with God, the Bible usually describes it as death. The wages of sin is death. And so I, I feel compelled, I always have felt, to preach that the wages of sin is death. Uh, you forfeit eternal life. I know there are some folks who believe that you suffer for all eternity, but I will just say that I, I can't think of an image of God personally that is more contrary to the God whose very essence is other-oriented love. I can't think of anything more contradictory to that than the image of a God who's inflicting pain on people just for the sake of inflicting pain on people, not to redeem them or teach them or anything, just for the sake of pain. Uh, yeah, I just, I, I, and the, the, the few passages that, that, seemed, that people interpret to teach that, that speak about eternal punishment, there's other ways of interpreting those. Eternal, not in duration, but inter- eternal in terms of consequence. When, once you're dead, you're forever dead, but it's not like you're per- forever in the process of experiencing death. Anyways, that's the tension I have. Now, how do you resolve this tension? Maybe you can't. Maybe you just got to live in this kind of tension. Um, but it's always good to explore things, you know, possibilities. Here's one possibility. Um, Maybe when Paul says all are in Christ, all, all we're in Adam are all in Christ, he's speaking generally, but it allows for exceptions. So for example, when he says all died in Adam, there's one exception to that. And that is Jesus Christ, who is a full human being. So also when Paul says all are in Christ, maybe he means all in Christ, except for those who refuse to accept that reality. That's one, one possibility. But there, you have to intentionally put yourself out. The default has changed. The default is you're in, just don't put yourself out by insisting on your self-lordship. And it would have to be an intentional, an intentional refusal with full knowledge, with full understanding, knowing what you're doing. Otherwise, it wouldn't be just. 
So no one is going to be put outside of Christ just because they were born in the wrong place or raised in the wrong home or, or taught the wrong religion or because the person who evangelized them had bad breath and turned them off to Christianity for the rest of their life or whatever. Uh, no, an all-loving father would not leverage the eternal welfare of his children on a contingency, on an accident, on a happenstance, where they happen to be born or, or, or whatever. It would have to be a volitional thing, and, and it's something that you do with, with, with persistently. Uh, you put yourself in this, in, in this position. Uh, here's a second possibility. And I'm just thinking possibilities here. But it's an interesting one. Maybe the wages of sin is death, but that death is not final. That's not the last word. Maybe what's put to death is, is all that was old. All the, uh, the person insofar as they're living in a lie. They live in false identity. Um, if everything God does is out of love, then if God allows someone to die, it's got to be for loving reasons. And it could be that he allows them to die. He allows the consequences of their sin to put them back into nothingness out of mercy towards them because for them to go on in this condition would be hell. Uh, to, to be solidified in a, a stance against God is to be solidified in a stance against everything that is of value. Life, love, goodness. And that means it, it, it's worse than non-existence. So the loving thing for God to do, if that's the final thing, is to let them go. But perhaps in letting them die, the motive's got to be loving. And so maybe what dies is not the whole existence of the person, but rather just all that's false about them. You know, in the, in the book of Revelation, and I'm just thinking all out here, okay? I'm just, I, join me on this theological exploration. But in Revelation 19, okay, the kings in the book of Revelation are always the real bad guys. Throughout the book, no exception. Until the very end. But the, the kings, the, they're the political wing of Satan's empire, of Babylon here. So they're the kings of the earth. It's always negative. And in Revelation 19, um, Jesus slays all those kings. He slays them as he's going into battle covered in blood. And he slays them with a sword that's coming out of his mouth. And John describes it in, in graphic detail. They are slaughtered. And the birds came and fed on their flesh. Right, so this is gore. And that's a traditional kind of way of describing the utter defeat of an enemy. The birds eat their rotting bodies. But what's interesting is that then in Revelation 21, as John is describing the heavenly city, he says, and the kings of this earth bring the glory of their nations into the heavenly city. Wait a minute. These guys all got killed back in 19. The birds ate their flesh. And here they are bringing the glory into the, the, the heavenly city. And it says that the doors of the new Jerusalem are always open. So they're not going to be shut from God's side. But what's also interesting is that John ends up, he describes it saying that the doors are always open, but the evildoers who persist in, in, in living in contradiction to the ways of God, that they're, they're not allowed in. Or they don't go in. Now they, the, If they don't go in, it's not because God's shutting them out. It's because they're shutting themselves out. They're inconsistent with what is in there. And so the finality of John, he has this glorious good news. There's hope even for the kings of this earth to be redeemed, even though they've been slain. Maybe you can hold out that hope for everybody. But uh, um, uh, even there, it ends with an invitation, but not a coercion. You can come anytime you want. So yeah, there's this, 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 this tension here. 
Uh, what I do know is that if it's possible for God to save everybody, if that's possible, then I know God's going to find a way to do it. <laughs> if it's possible that that could happen, then that's, that's the heart of God right there. He's not letting any should perish. So, okay. So here's what I know. That point number one is that there's this tension and, and I just live in this possibility. But number two, I really believe that we're called to hope. To go beyond a theoretical possibility and to really hope that there is a way for everyone to be found, to everyone to be finally saved. Um, love believes all things and love hopes all things. First uh, Corinthians 13. And so we're called to believe the best and hope for the best. And this also we find taught in 2 Corinthians 5. Last verse I'll read from there. He says this. Because one died for all and therefore all have died. Because of that, Paul says, from now on we regard no one from a human point of view. A strictly natural point of view. Though we once regarded Christ this way, we, we, we know him no longer in that way. So we look at Christ altogether different because now he's got the revelation that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. So he sees everything different because of that. I no longer view Christ in a natural way. I no longer view anyone in a natural way. But rather, he says this, if, so if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See, everything has become new. See, he's talking about how we look. I believe we're called to look at everybody through the eyes of hope because we're called to look at everybody through the lens of the cross. Therefore, looking at everybody, knowing that they have unsurpassable worth, knowing that they've been claimed by God, knowing that when Jesus died, he did it for the whole human race and they're part of this human race. And so we look at them with eyes of hope, um, knowing that, 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 that God is working on their side to see them through the eyes of love. And here's the thing. If you have trouble looking at any particular person or any group of people with eyes of hope, if there's any person or any group of people that you hope go to hell, and maybe you even hope that hell is this eternal conscious suffering, uh, if there's anyone that you have, would not want to see in heaven, that if you regard me as your pastor, I want to give you a, a strong, encouraging word. Put them on your, the list of people that you pray for every day. That list of enemies that we should always be praying for every single day. Because that's the muscle we got to flex the most. Because that's the hardest one to flex. And start praying for that person. And watch how God is going to change your heart towards that person over time. And see, that's because you're aligning your heart with truth. And when you know the truth, it will set you free. It will set you free. Get rid of that, man. It is cancer and it will kill you. The final thing I want to say in five minutes is this, that however ugly and however painful, however terrible things may get in our life and things may get on this planet, we've got to know that the story ends spectacularly well. However we interpret these passages, Paul is saying it as good as, as, as it can be. Uh, it, it, it's, it's It's spectacular. Paul dares to say, as I repeat a lot, because it's so important for us, especially in the season that we're in, that, that the, the sufferings of this present age can't be compared to the glory that is going to be revealed to us. The glory that's going to be revealed to us is incomparably better than the suffering that we're now experiencing. And man, there's a lot of suffering in this world. However ugly, however painful things may get, Paul says in Romans 8 that they are labor pains, which means they're productive pains. They're not just fortuitous, accidental, meaningless. No, this whole creation is in these groaning pains, waiting for this revelation to come, and for the children of God to be manifested according to 
the truth according to who we truly are, because when we are restored, then the entire creation is restored, because as humans go, so the earth goes. And so the creation is groaning for this. It's painful, but it's going to produce something beautiful. And that we just have to take by faith. It will be worth it. It will be more than worth it once we get on the other side. However we interpret the particulars of this, as we go into this, what I think is a season of judgment, whether it's the final judgment or not, I don't know. But as we see everything heating up, society heating up, the planet heating up, and the climatologists say it's going to get worse and worse and faster and faster before it turns around, and we don't know when it's going to turn around. But as, as we're going through that, it'd be so crucial for us to hang out of this truth. It will be more than worth it. It will be in, incomparably worth it. I, I mentioned, uh, I guess, two months ago that my sister Debbie uh, had brain cancer. Uh, she's nine years older than me, and I love her. She is the most positive person I've ever met in my life, honestly. Um, but she passed away this week. Uh, and, and yeah, it is, it's, uh, death is always sad. I wasn't supposed to ever be like this, but, but it's good news. She was ready to go. She wanted to go. She, had, she was looking forward to going. Um, she died a beautiful death. But the last time I visited her, it was on Friday. She died on, on Tuesday. And she was unable to communicate with me, but, I, I, but she understood when I could communicate with her. And, and she could communicate a lot just by her expressions. And we had a really great visit. It was just beautiful. And at the end of the visit, right at the very end, I, I just shared this thought. I, I said, Debbie, you know, I, I've really come to believe that the death process uh, is a whole lot like the birthing process. I, I have to believe that that little baby is just getting ready to come out of the womb. It's terrifying. And, you know, how am I going to fit through that? It's going to crush my head. I mean, it's got to be just terrifying. <laughs> very unpleasant experience. That's why they're crying when they come out. Um, <laughs> What, what's going on here? You know, <laughs> who did this to me? I was really comfortable back there. It's so cold out here. But the death process is, I think, the same. What, what, what you're going through, Debbie, right now, it sucks. And, and what the world's going through right now, it really sucks. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a fallen world. It was never supposed to be like this. But I believe that it will all be worth it. This, God's gonna be, he always brings good out of evil, and God's going to use this to bring about something that's more glorious than we can possibly imagine, because all the sufferings in this world can't be compared to it. And as I'm saying this, her husband, David, uh, started to weep. And I've, I've only seen him tear up one other time, and maybe twice in, in my whole life with him. Uh, he starts to weep, and he comes over, and he says, Greg, I want you to read this letter. Could you read it out loud? It's a letter that Debbie had gotten the day before from her niece. And the letter was a beautiful letter. It was just thanking Debbie for being the person that she was and uh, how much she respects Debbie and, and, and all of this. Uh, but at the end of the letter, she says something like, you know, Debbie, I've come to believe that the dying process is a whole lot like the birth process. And it's just so painful to go through, uh, but it's always more than worth it. I mean, you, it, it, was, it was almost exactly verbatim what I had just said. I got goosebumps reading it. I had to read it three times. It was just uncanny. And, and, and so I said to Debbie, well, I, I can't believe this is a coincidence. Um, and I, 
the function of this, the purpose of this, I, I think, is to put a megaphone to this message, Debbie, to draw our attention, and not just to you, but to me and to Dave, and maybe I'll even share this with the whole congregation, I said to her, but that is, it will be more than worth it. It will be incomparably more than worth it. The sufferings of this present age, whatever you're going through, it can't be compared to the glory that's going to be revealed to us. We are in a dark season here, folks. There's no questioning that, and everybody on some level knows that. And apart from that, maybe you're going through particular things. Maybe you're really discouraged because six months of exercise progress got reversed in one day, and, and you're back to square one, so it seems. That could be kind of discouraging, I would imagine. But you know what? However discouraging it gets, however pessimistic things may appear here on the service, know in, the heart, in your heart of hearts that it will end well. It'll be incomparably worth it. Hallelujah. It will be worth it. Because everything, everything God does, everything God does, he does out of other-oriented love in our interest. And so even when there's hell to pay, because we brought it on ourselves, if God lets us go through hell, it's because it's in our best interest to go to, through hell. And out of that, God's going to produce something that will be incomparably worth it. Uh, I just want to end with this. Father, thank you for being a God whose love outruns anything we can imagine. Uh, words can't even say it. Thank you for saving us. While we were dead in Adam, you've made us alive in Jesus Christ. And give us that heart, God, for all other people. Help us to love people and want the best for people, even our enemies, the way you do, Lord. Transform us into your image. And as we go out to be your people in this, for, the, for yet another week here in this fallen world, as we do that, Holy Spirit, will you just be burning hot, hot within us, a passionate love for God and a passionate love for our neighbor as ourselves, and a passionate love for the earthly and the animal kingdom and help us to live faithful and incongruent with that call because that's what's true in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Let's give God a hand. He's beautiful. God is beautiful. Unimaginably beautiful. Hallelujah, hallelujah. We've got uh, the Musecast on Tuesdays where you can go deeper with this message as, as Sean and Dan and uh, sometimes others talk about this. Uh, uh, we've got the gathering groups. Man, I keep on hearing great things about our gathering groups. Encourage you to check those out. Uh, God's, God's working in those, in those groups. It's, it's beautiful. Uh, if you're going to be here next week and you have kiddos with you, uh, let us know ahead of time so we have enough workers to, to handle that. Uh, check out, remember that volunteering things you only, you can do volunteer as little as once a week, Dan says. So, uh, Wants to, to, to take, take seriously on that. And there's, uh, and there's prayer available. Whatever your need is, don't leave with uh, that uh, burden here. Uh, online, you can uh, have prayer pastors with you there. And we have some folks up front here. God is good, you guys. God bless you guys. Uh, let's go out and, and live out the kingdom. Be light in a world of darkness. In Jesus' name, amen.